Welcome to the Noel Kassler Podcast, episode 102, coming back at you. All right. Welcome back, guys. Good to see you. Celebratory mood today broke out the... The little mini throats. All right, and I cranked the mic up, so hopefully you can hear a little better. Let's get into it. We got a lot to talk about. Right. What happened yesterday? Trump met his GD match. Am I right? Jack Smith? <laughs> Dude, that guy made me feel like I committed a crime. I would have just been like, take me in now, brother. I'll plead. <laughs> you got me. Right. Trump's in trouble and he knows it. I guarantee you his entire life. He's used the judicial system, as many wealthy white guys done have done, but none more than him. You know, he was involved in 4,000 lawsuits before he became president. He always knew he could sort of delay and obfuscate and buy some lawyers and, and buy himself time and wear down the other side, right? That's how he got out of paying people forever. That was his MO. And that has run out because Jack Smith ain't playing. And I guarantee you Trump knows it. And it was glorious how he came out and spoke about the Capitol Hill officers who were not just protecting Congress and the Senate and the property. They were protecting what it stood for, democracy, the peaceful transfer of power that separates us from the rest of the world, right? They were protecting that. And for him to come out and put it in those very stark terms, I thought was a wonderful thing and it's it's what we need to hear a lot more of in the coming months and year ahead you know year and a half to the campaign because that's what really went down right trump was trying to use violence to get his way which he's done as a sexual predator with girls and women some of whom i know and we've talked about he's done it in business he's done it with family members he's done it you know basically Every opportunity he's gotten since he, he was a broken little kid who would throw rocks at the neighbor's baby and punch the teacher and they sent to reform school and he tried to, you know, hang his roommate out of a window. You know, he's an inflated ego walking around knowing he's a piece of crap inside and he has no real self-esteem. He can't read. He's not bright. He's not particularly good looking. You know, and he wants to be all of those things. He wants to be admired and loved and he never will be. And he knows it. So he gives into addictions and defects and all these horrible things. And somehow he was sort of the perfect beast at the perfect time in our culture where a lot of people wanted to celebrate that sort of thing. And I don't just mean in 2016, 15, 16 beyond. I mean in the 80s when they wrote page after page about him and the gossip pages and on New York Magazine and then the New York Post, you know, the brash young developer who's going to remake the city in this glamorous new way and look at his model wife and all this crap. You know, it was an image and it sold newspapers and it sold TV shows and it sold a lot of dumb people on the idea that they finally had a politician who was going to work for them. And it made them turn their backs on the party that was actually delivering results. You know, <laughs> President Obama and Obamacare was the best thing that happened to rural, rural white America and ex-urban America, but they were too stupid to know it because they were getting lied to by Fox News and the Tea Party and all these other idiots that were telling them to go up against Obamacare, right? How could you think of... Like you couldn't think of anything more stupid if you were doing a social experiment. You know, let's let's get people who were underrepresented in healthcare in a country where healthcare is ridiculously expensive. And here comes a guy who's going to deliver a way for them to get that. And now they're going to fight on behalf of insurance companies to make sure it doesn't happen, to make sure they don't get affordable health care. That's insane. And they did it. You know, I don't want Obamacare. What do you want then? You know, you want to get fucking gangrene because you got, you know, cut on the job and you, you're going to a, you know, a, a healthcare place in a strip mall 
rapid care or whatever they call it now. You know, that's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. People pay for their cancer treatment with GoFundMe accounts in this country. That's just beyond the pale, right? And, and that's just one example of the sort of thing that Republicans have been trying to protect. And Trump is the perfect beast to protect that, right? Because he's loud and obnoxious and annoying, and he provides a great distraction for the Koch brothers and the federal Federalist Society and all these other billionaires who want to send him in there like a bull in a china shop to essentially do their bidding, but do it in such a grotesque fashion that the rubes who follow him don't know what he's doing. <laughs> and meanwhile, they're poisoning the planet with with oil and gas. You know, they're they're making what was once a you know a prosperous nation with with social democratic policies that like the GI Bill right? And social security and unemployment and all these things that helped make sure nobody went down too far and everybody got a decent shot at a decent life. They want to strip that away because they want a bunch of billionaires and then a bunch of dumb people who are too weak and too sick to do anything about it. And who do you get to commit a crime? You get a criminal. And that's what Donald Trump is. But the criminal has met his match. Okay? Because <laughs> that dude ain't playing right? <laughs> that dude ain't playing. Jack Smith, baby. And Trump knows it. I guarantee you last night was one of the worst nights of his life. And he's a man without shame or conscious. Don't get me wrong, but he's a coward at heart. And that's the thing that people don't get about Donald Trump. You know, they always ask me like, aren't you worried he's going to go after you? I'm like, no, he's a coward. He knows I'm telling the truth and he knows I know the same kind of people he does, right? Not that I'm a, you know, <laughs> a mob boss, but we know some of the same people. And there's a lot more to the story than you've heard. And he knows that, you know, he knows he's still essentially lucky in what he's gotten away with. But he's not going to get away with it any longer. And hopefully people are going to wake up in the next year and a half. You know, I think that's the big challenge ahead is that we need to illuminate and illustrate for people just what is in this indictment and hopefully the trial will be televised you know that that needs to happen if we can watch oj simpson you know we can watch donald trump the, because this is going to be the biggest trial of our lifetime this is dred scott brown v board of ed this is all of it wrapped up into one because because what is more american than the peaceful transfer of power when you think about it that is what separates us from other you know nations in many ways. And that's what we've always claimed as the mantle of our excellence, right? Is that we do things different here. We do it at the box office and have you or at the box office. <laughs> we do it at the ballot box. You know, we do it at the box office too, right? We dominate the world. Barbie, baby. I'm not going to get started on the Oppenheimer. That's going to take me on a different ramp. Okay. But uh, no, we, we, we do it by showing up and voting. And, and we've been a shining example, flawed, admittedly, but we, we have been a pretty, pretty consistent example in our relatively short life of that principle. And here's a guy who tried to usurp it for his own gain. And it wasn't because he wanted the job again, because he didn't do the job in the first place, right? He didn't show up in the Oval Office every day until noon and he lived upstairs. Okay. He sat up there watching Fox and friends and snorting Adderall and putting on his face paint and blow drying his three tufts of hair still hanging off the side of his head and went down there in his Cuban heels when he was damn well ready. Okay. He wasn't showing up to work for the American people. Like, can you imagine being president of the United States and not being at your desk every day at 8 a.m. at the, you know, at the latest? Like, that's crazy. You get a job at Lehman Brothers. Well, they're out of business, but you get a job on Wall Street. You're at your desk at 730 or you're fucked. Sorry to curse so much. But, uh, you know, Trump didn't care. So he didn't want the job. He didn't want, you know, to keep enacting his policy because there was no policy. You know, he was there to create chaos on behalf of the sort of robber, robber barons that I described before. And he's doing the same thing again. Right. He's running now to stay out of jail or pardon himself and to raise money for his legal defense. He's not talking about policy. 
right? He's doing campaign events a couple times a week now. He's not like, here's my plan to reform education. Here's my infrastructure plan. Here's my healthcare. No, he's just like, send me money. The Dems are evil. They want to lock me up because they're really trying to get to you. No, we're not trying to get to you, Joe Cabela's. We don't want to learn how to skin a deer. You know, <laughs> you, you, we're not mad at you. Okay. We're trying to get to him because he's ripping you off and you're too stupid to know it. And you're about to give up your future and your kid's future and the future of this planet because you're getting conned by one of the scumbags, like one of the biggest scumbags that we've ever produced in this country. And Trump's always been that way, but he's a wealthy white man in a Brioni suit, you know, and a red tie. And he was able to use the judicial system to protect himself his entire life and his, protect his friends. As I've said many times on this podcast, he was involved in 4,000 lawsuits before he became POTUS because he knew he could wear down the other side. He knew that the law was designed to protect wealthy white dudes. And a lot of the decisions got made at the country club, not the courtroom. How do you think he got his business partner and his personal helicopter pilot, Joseph Weichelbaum, who was flying cocaine up from Miami to Ohio and got busted in Ohio with a bunch of kilos in his helicopter? How do you think he got that case moved into his sister's courtroom, federal district in northern New Jersey? Because people behind the scenes made it happen to protect the Trump brand and the Trump name because he spreads around money. And he's got other people involved in his business and he becomes too big to fail. And that's a lot of what the Trump era was about, too big to fail. It's still somewhat that way or we wouldn't be walking free. You know, if Trump was a black man in this country, you think he'd be out on bail sitting at his golf course right now? No. You know, and we all know it. So if anything, this is a teachable moment. Right. And a blessing to, to really point out the inequality of this country, because we can't just keep, you know, sweeping it under the rug because Trump is, you know, that, you know, Trump is sort of like. I want to say the soft white underbelly, you know, but he's the filthy sort of, you know. Thing we don't want to look at. You know, and we've never really confronted and looked at. We've never dealt with race. We've never dealt with reparations in any kind of meaningful way in this country. And we should, because we were a very ignorant, very cruel nation, you know, and that's what we were founded on genocide and the enslavement of other people. Okay. And that, that kind of aberration, you know, that spiritual malady that allows something like that to exist is still in our people. That's why Republican politicians are running on racism. They're running on slavery wasn't a bad thing. It taught job skills, as DeSantis said in Florida. You know, to think of somebody knowing that that was a decent political strategy to run on in 2023 should terrify you. And it should teach you a lot about the country you live in. Okay. Because DeSantis didn't accidentally mutter that. You know, he, that wasn't caught on tape. That was something that he wrote, you know, that his campaign staff wrote because they know the issues that are going to move their voter base. And that base has only grown under Trump. That's why they're all trying to be mini Trumps, right? They're going to the right. There's no response to Trump like, hey, let's get back to fiscal conservative, you know, conservatism and doing the right thing and strong defense. There's none of that. These guys are anti-democracy. They're anti-supporting Ukraine. They want all the money to go to their leader, and they want to punish anybody who's not a wealthy white Christian or a dumb white Christian willing to support them, and they'll pay them off with a gun and a Bible and a pickup truck so they can participate in their own destruction, and that'll be it. And these dumbasses won't know what hit them. You know, it'll be over. If a Republican gets back into office, especially Donald Trump, I shouldn't say a Republican, right? He's the only one who has a shot at this point, which again, says so much about our country and what it says is not good. So this is our moment. You know, this is our moment to, to teach our fellow Americans about what's really going down. You know, Jeffrey Clark, one of the co-conspirators in yesterday's indictment, said to his fellow DOJ colleague, 
who said, hey, if he just like, you know, seizes like the electors and, and claims himself president, we're going to have riots in every major city in the United States. And Jeffrey Clark goes, that's what we have the Insurrection Act for, meaning we'll just send in the military and take care of the problem. Shoot fellow Americans, right? You know, that's assuming that the military would do it. I don't know that they would have the stomach to do that. You know, I'm hoping they would not <laughs> obey those orders, but I wouldn't, you know, there was a lot of things I didn't think would happen that I've seen happen in the last five years. So, so, but we have to explain to people that, that that's what they're talking about. That's what these guys were doing. That's how close they came. You know, that was plan, plan A, plan B. Plan C was to hang the freaking vice president on the steps of the Capitol in a gallows. They brought a gallows. Like, what are we even talking about here? You know, why was Trump walking free? You know, after January 6th, they should have locked him up that goddamn day. I don't know why Merrick Garland waited a year or a year and a half or whatever before, you know, he waited until Trump announced to to appoint Jack Smith. And that was last November. And Jack Smith is just kicking ass. He's just like, all right, he's like Blade. He's just in there like kicking ass, right? But why did we wait so long? You know, we, we should have been on it right away. Time was not on our side. Now, Lawrence O'Donnell made a great argument last night that Merrick Garland sort of stood aside and, 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 you know, kept his powder dry until the January 6th committee could do their thing. And, and I, you know, there's, I give some weight to that argument because I do believe it was important for people to see what Trump did in those hearings. And we got to see that. We got to hear from the witnesses directly, all of whom were Republicans that were working with Trump, that were in the room. And they corroborated everything that we heard in the indictment yesterday. So it didn't come out of the blue and it didn't hit people's ears as if like, wait, what happened? How did they know this? Is this true? Can they prove that? You know, everything they talked about yesterday, you were like, yeah, that happened. We learned that from Cassidy Hutchinson. We learned that from Bill Barr's testimony. And additionally, they got Mike Pence. Obviously, Mark Meadows flipped, you know. They got all these other guys that they've pressured in their interviews. So, you know, I, I tend to probably agree with Lawrence on that point that that maybe, you know, that this it was sort of built up in, in the correct way. But it's moving fast now and it's moving at a pace that Trump's not going to be able to do a damn thing about it, especially if Georgia, you know, if, if Fannie Willis, Fannie Willis brings her case in the next couple of weeks, which it sounds like she is. It's going to be a hot summer for Mr. Trump, and it already is, you know, and and that's reason to celebrate, but it's re it's a sobering celebration, right? It's not pop the champagne because we're not out of the woods. They could reelect this moron, and then it's all over, and then he's going to seek revenge. If there's one thing I know about Trump, that dude thrives on resentment and getting even, okay? So he'll punish everybody if you give him a chance. He needs to be locked up in Leavenworth with a mask over his face, <laughs> you know, like Hannibal Lecter. And so does Rudy Giuliani. I don't know if you caught wind of the transcript from his assistant that he was sleeping with and sexually harassing and screwed her out of money. So she's suing him for wage theft and uh, whatever. I don't even want to get into it, but he's just, you know, it's who Rudy always was. And anybody who was around him knew that he's a lech and a lush and just a scumbag scumbag. That's why he's been attached at the hip with Trump because they're two peas in the pod, but he's going to go down too. And it looks like he'll get charged directly in the Georgia case because they've said as much, you know, and, and at some point we have to assume the DOJ is going to go after the rest of the co-conspirators. So that, that's a wonderful thing. You know, that means that the, the system is working and he's taking care of these guys. So it's probably not our job to kind of like protest and demand they hold them accountable and all this stuff because they're doing it. Those those, you know, those asks have been answered. What is our job is to educate our fellow Americans as to what's really going on here, you know, and what Trump really did. Like I just explained the Jeffrey Clark stuff and I think it was Rachel Maddow who said what struck her the most when she when she read the indictment was the violence that they were talking about, the casual use of violence. And if you've been around Donald Trump, that's Trump. He's a violent dude. You know, behind closed doors, 
he was a nasty guy and he did a lot of nasty things to a lot of people, especially the women who worked in the brothels that were in Trump Tower. You know, some of them would ask them, the madam, not to send him with Trump anymore because he was too rough. You know, he's a sicko. He's a sicko. He's a sadist. That's why all his talks at the border always involved like the specific elements of torturing people. He's a, he, he's a messed up dude. And he was willing to perpetrate perpetrate violence on the American people to save his own ass and throw out American history. All that democracy, all those heroes that we honor in Arlington Cemetery, you know, in Gettysburg, like in all these places, all these battlefields where American men and women have spilled their blood and sacrificed to protect the peaceful transfer of power. He was spitting on all that, suckers and losers, as he said, of fallen vets. You know, he stood with John Kelly at Arlington when Kelly was looking at his own son's grave, you know, who died in the, in the Middle East and said, I don't get it. Why would you do this? Right. He dodged the draft five times himself, lied about having bone spurs. And his dad paid off a podiatrist who, you know, rented an office in his little office park in, in Woodside or whatever, Forest Hills, wherever the fuck, Jamaica Estates. I'm sorry. I'm cursing so much. But, uh, you know, that's who Trump is, a man who's never sacrificed for this country. He doesn't even pay his taxes. You know, he's going to get arraigned tomorrow in D.C. He's going to go back to his golf course in Bedminster, New Jersey, a 113-acre golf course where he paid $700 in property taxes in 2020 on 113 acres of prime New Jersey real estate, Okay. There's about 10 times that here, you know, and New Jersey's got even higher taxes than Westchester, okay? He's been ripping off the state of New Jersey as long as he's owned that thing, almost like 20 years. That's who he is. He keeps eight goats and claims it's a farm, you know? He, married, he buried his ex-wife out on the back nine of the golf course, calls it a cemetery. It's a scam. He's not paying his fair share. He doesn't care about this country. He cares about Donald Trump, and that became very attractive to a lot of people who saw him get away with it and said, I wouldn't mind getting some of that, you know, and the forces behind him, the Koch brothers and the Federalist Society, who'd always sort of been trying to inveigle themselves into American politics in a more sober intellectual way, right? Not that Reagan was any kind of intellectual, but there was a bit of like you know, quiet, reserve, grandfatherly, you know, George H.W. Bush, you know, kind of element to the thing. And then Trump came in. Well, it was actually the Tea Party came in. The Tea Party presaged Trump, but it, it happened at the same time that Trump's rise started, right? And it was all in reaction to Obama, you know, a brilliant black man who was going to beat them at their own game. It was more competent and more intelligence than anybody they'd put on the field in generations, if not ever, you know, took the reins of a country when it was in complete tumult, right? We had two wars overseas that were going horribly. We had the, you know, the, the, the real estate market crater out, causing a great recession. You know, people were losing their homes, their jobs, unheard of things you know lehman brothers was shutting down overnight like dudes who thought they were set for life were broke the next day you know really tough situation to like tap in <laughs> and say i got this and obama did it turned around the ship you know and sailed us back in a decent direction and instead of saying thank you they said we're going to stop you in every way we can mitch mcconnell on the day Obama got inaugurated. President Obama said, we're going to, you know, we're going to kill every piece of legislation he sends up to the Hill. Who does that? This is America. You should want to work together. You should want to help get us out of the hole that you dug us in, that your policies dug us in, right? George W. Bush or George, yeah, W. H.W. was the other one I was talking about. But you know what I mean? Clinton had a booming economy. You know, W comes in blows it, gives it all away to, you know, petrochemical interests and HBR, you know, Halliburton, KBR Halliburton and whoever else, Dick Cheney told him, wanted a piece of the action. 
Next thing we know, we're cratering. We send in Obama. He fixes it. They don't like it because he's black. We send in Donald Trump, a clown who ruins it, shuts down the whole economy, doesn't react to COVID in a proper way. A million Americans die. Streets are on fire because racism is rampant, especially in law enforcement. And he's not doing anything to address it. And then he tries to burn the whole thing down on the way out the door. And now we got Biden again, who's literally steered this country so quickly in the right direction. His policies are working. Unemployment is at historic lows. You know, the recession that everybody was forecasting is now off the table. You know, we're not in a booming economy, but things are lifting up construction, infrastructure, and it's an equitable recovery. And they're making sure of that. Is there a lot of work to do? Of course there is. You know, we're just at the beginning and we're digging out of a big hole, but we're going in the right direction. And all Americans, regardless of your political beliefs, should be down with that, right? We should all be like, I want more of that. Instead of this tip in the scale, this seesawism, right? But this time, you know, if the seesaw lands again and delivers the presidency to Donald Trump, it's all over, you know? And we need to get off of this cycle anyway, but you're talking a despot. You know, you're talking authoritarian rule and you got to tell your friends, you know, when you see them in the parking lot, you know, at the church or the elementary school and they're spewing their anti-Biden, Hunter Biden crap, you know, you got to say, hey, that's a made up story. That's Benghazi all over again. Nothing happened there. That's Hillary's e emails, you know, that's what Sean Hannity and the rest of the morons at Fox News are feeding your dumb ass at night because it's keeping them in mansions in Watermill and keeping you stuck up in Putnam Valley digging ditches. You know, that's what's happening. And you got to tell these people because they're too, they're too brainwashed to get it on their own. And they're too deep in their own cultural sort of crap that gets reinforced by all the messaging, the screaming eagle tattoos and the pickup trucks and the flags and the, you know, all the crap in all the small towns that you hear about honoring our heroes, you know, like that freaking idiot cowboy guy who's from a small town. He's from Macon, Georgia. They got an airport, <laughs> you know, it ain't a small town. And that guy's a punk. He ran off the stage in Vegas without warning anybody. My guy was one of his lighting techs, my buddy that I toured with, you know, was on that same stage. 60 people got slaughtered in a field and he's coming out you know, with a pro-gun, pro-lynching town. And people hear that and they hear the reaction to it. Oh, the left, the woke people don't want to honor the truth of good, you know, small town American values. That's not what it is, man. And those small towns don't exist because you let Reagan ship everything offshore to appease Wall Street, to appease Michael Milken and a bunch of corporate raiders in the 80s. That's why you live in a rust belt. That's why your kids cooking meth in the backyard, you know, because there's no future because you let a bunch of rich guys sell your future away and give you a few bobbles, a pickup truck and a dumbass country song and a gun and say that, you know, the Mexican and the black guy is the reason your life sucks. No, the reason your life sucks is because you're a dumbass, you know, and you got left behind and you don't understand why you can't just make $60 an hour in a factory like your father could. Because it's gone. Because people got too greedy. They wanted too much. <sighs> LBOs, leveraged buyouts. I don't want to get too deep into that, but you know that was sort of a financial innovation that came out in the late 70s that basically allowed companies to borrow money, buy another company, gut it, sell it off for parts, write off the interest that they borrowed the money from, you know, not pay any penalty and just make pure profit. And it didn't matter how many people it put out of work. You know, that was essentially the whole corporate rate era kind of era that you heard about in the 80s. And that's what decimated a lot of the industry in this country. That's what sort of created the Rust Belt. And it basically did it overnight. You know, and we're still digging out from that. And the modern version of that is the hedge fund, of course, that's buying up everything for profit and putting people out of their homes. You know, hedge funds shouldn't be owning people's homes, right? But that same sort of 
predatory capitalism is at foot here as it was under Reagan. And it's the same iconography that masks it and camouflages it to the people it hurts the most. And then those people, you know, they know something's not right, right? I'm not completely like dissing on those people. I was at a Willie Nelson concert the other night over the weekend up in the Adirondack or in the Catskills. And, uh, you know, it looked like every other person there knew how to skin a deer. <laughs> you know, it wasn't my normal crowd. I love Willie. I worked with Willie a lot. It wasn't Willie's normal crowd either. It was country, you know, it was called the Outlaw Music Festival. And a bunch of people came out to hear some country music. And, you know, I was deep in a, in sort of Trump country, you know, and I feel for these people, to be honest with you, because they're getting played and they don't know it, but they know something's not right, right? It's not to... It's not to say there isn't suffering. It, there is. It bothers me, you know, because they're getting picked on and they're getting conned, but they don't know who's really doing it to them. And, and we haven't been able to effectively get that message to the people from Reagan on. So maybe this is the opportunity, you know, maybe this is the opportunity to truly point out what this case is about, who Trump has always been and who the people that supported him have always been, you know. The Bernie Carricks and the Rudy Giuliani's and the guys that pretended to, you know, act like they were honoring the, you know, the fallen after 9-11. Bernie Carrick was sleeping with widows in, in the apartment that was given for, for first responders to take a break from working on the pit. Bernie Carrick was up there sleeping with widows, mistresses, dudes, you know, wives who had already perished. That's the kind of moral fiber in the people that supported Trump. And don't get me started on Giuliani, who was wearing a mask in the weeks and months after 9-11. And he told everybody else that the air was safe to breathe. And I lived across the street from Gracie Mansion from not before 9-11 on. And I saw him come home every night wearing a mask. And I smelled, you know, the smoke and the air that would fill the apartment because it's high up and it was on the East River where I was and it was a nice time of year. So you'd leave the windows open at three in the morning, the winds would change. They'd come up the East river. This is near the hell's gate. You know, the city and the apartment would fill with this acrid smoke, you know, and I got friends who worked on the pit that have cancer and all kinds of horrible, you know, lung issues because of that now. And Rudy lied about it and then profited off it for 20 years. We're coming up on the anniversary again. And it drives me nuts every time because I worked on the, you know, the memorials that we did on September 11th for years and years after. The last one I did was when we opened the museum, but I did it forever. And I would handle the VIPs that sort of came that morning. And, and when I first started doing it, I would bring the children, you know, I had to bring the children up to stage that were reading their parents' names. And it was just, I mean, it's so heartbreaking that like I had to stop doing the gig and I would be wrecked for days afterwards. Not about me. I'm just telling you how heavy the vibe is down there that morning. And Rudy would show up and come into the VIP tent and be smiling and glad hand handing people like, Hey, Bob, how you doing? Good to see you. What's you up? You know, like, what are you doing, dude? We're at a funeral. You know what I mean? Not a polite smile of comfort or something like, you know, jubilant i don't even know if that's a word <laughs> you know just inappropriately sort of gleeful because that was his power base right that's where he was making his money so to him 9-11 was a good thing because it was putting money in his pocket and as crazy as that sounds do a little deep dive on rudy and it won't sound so crazy but uh you know that's who these men are these men that that had this you know that appropriate your sacrifice and the sacrifice of honest Americans, especially the kind of Americans, you know, these days that get caught up in serving our country. You know, some do it with dignity and honor. Some do it because it's the only way out of their town. And I got no problem with those people. I got a big problem with people who steal their valor and glory. You know, you got Tommy Tuberville, who's lied about his dad. He said his dad was a tank commander on D-Day. It's storming Normandy Beach. His dad was a corporal who was in World War II, but there's no records of him being anywhere near Normandy Beach on June 6th. You know, he shows up later, you know, 
in the same region, but he wasn't, and he said he got five bronze stars. Nobody has bronze, five bronze stars. You know, <laughs> the most decorated veteran ever only had two bronze stars, you know, and there's no way to prove a lot of this because the records all burnt in the early seventies that had a lot of this information. So these people kind of know they can get away with this stuff, especially now that most vets are dying. But could you think of anything more ridiculous than lying about that? Well, you can, right? Because it's Tommy Tuberville. He also told his constituents down there in Alabama that he would donate his salary to veterans' causes when he got to D.C., if they sent him to D.C. as a senator, because he was already a wealthy man from being a fo football coach. He was lying. He hasn't donated his salary. All he's done is hold up military appointments. So there's like 200 plus, you know, advancements of military leadership generals and stuff who can't take the job and lead the troops because this idiot's grandstanding and, and weakening our country. And he's probably got a lot of support from a lot of vets down there in the South because they don't see through this BS. And we have to show people this kind of stuff because they're getting their information from podcast hosts and Fox News and trolls online and Elon Musk and all these other guys have a huge industry now to make that possible, you know, to make that mega horn super loud. It's like the analogy I always made, you know, the Democrats are like a, you know, a bluegrass trio in a church parking lot. And the right wing is like a Metallica concert, you know, <laughs> they got a PA and a whole stadium and a 10,000, you know, decibel, you know, avalanche of noise coming at them. And we learned a lot of that in the last election and, and in the Trump years, like it was whoever lied the loudest sort of won the narrative. And I think yesterday was the first chance to put a stop in that, to really reverse that. And besides Biden's obvious victory in 2020, which was miraculous, right? And we're dealing with the fallout now because obviously they didn't want to leave. They wanted to burn it to the ground. And if you think about Biden winning in 2020, you know, the stars were sort of aligned, right? Because Trump had clearly mishandled COVID. I think everybody knew that, even Republicans and stuff. And his only play left was like, you know, Fauci's a bad guy. Vaccines are bad. Shutdowns are bad. And he never, he was always straddling that kind of issue too because he knew vaccines were good <laughs> you know what i mean like he 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 didn't want to die of covid right but he knew desantis and the rest of these you know right-wing idiots that are listening to joe rogan and stuff started making this noise about you know vaccine mandates being bad and all this crap so so it was a it was a tough time to say the least for him politically and he got his ass kicked and he barely left okay this time there's more shades of 2016 than there are 2020, right? Because you've had the Democrat in office, right? So you've had the right-wing machine taking pot shots for years on end and talking about the Biden crime family and Hunter Biden and all this crap that isn't based in any kind of reality. Not that Hunter doesn't have his own troubles. He certainly does, but he's not an elected official. And he's somebody who's trying to get sober, you know, just like Ashley Biden was when they stole her diary and project veritas bought it from somebody and then gave it to republicans and they handed it around at a campaign event in florida that don jr was about her sober diary i talked about it on this show you know during the pandemic she was basically living in a rental kind of sober living kind of situation and left a you know a backpack behind in a closet and had a journal you know essentially probably a four step you know if you're in recovery you know what i'm talking about you know some kind of moral inventory. And she had it, you know, something deeply personal, something that's a medical record, essentially, right? Because addiction is a medical issue, right? So what they're going after Hunter for, they're guilty of themselves, you know? Don Jr. relapsed during his dad's first term, you know, and hopefully only term, and hasn't lifted his face up from the mirror since. You know, when I worked around him, they were dry. They were all dry drunks. Vonky was falling down drunk, in her young days, you know, she got kicked out of Chapin for being a little cokehead and sent up to Rosemary Choate, you know, up in Connecticut. And her dad gave her an SUV. You weren't allowed to have a car on campus if you were a student. They made an exception for Ivanka so she could go clubbing at night. 
know, she was a party girl and then married Jared and sort of not didn't get sober, but gave up drinking and adopted the sort of orthodox, not sort of orthodoxy, they're orthodox Jews, which is fine. But that was sort of that was her higher power kind of way of dealing with it. So she's still sober. Eric's had troubles. You know, my friend Tom Arnold helped Eric get sober out in Hawaii, basically helped him go to rehab. And Don Jr. is a mess. You know, so it's in their family. Trump's brothers both died of alcoholism. You know, Trump's an Adderall addict. You know, and when I talk about that stuff, I've said this before, but I'm not doing it to, to sort of just make fun of Donald Trump. I, I'm doing it to explain the character defects underneath addiction if you haven't gotten sober. Like if you've gotten sober and worked a program, you'd make a great president. And we have pres we've had presidents <laughs> that that had you know experience in that department. I'll uh, I'll leave it there, but I know that to be true, and and not that long ago. But somebody like Trump, who's in active addiction, who's only thinking about himself, it's the most dangerous thing you could have in a leader because you need a leader who can think about other people and have empathy. That's what we saw during the pandemic, and that's why I was trying to warn people about it. From 2015 on, because if something bad happens, this guy's only going to think about his own ass. And that's what happened with the pandemic. And that's what happened when he lost the election and he was willing to do anything to try and save his ass. And he still is. And he's been building an army out there. You know, that's who these people are that we need to, you know, that we need to reach because it's a cultural issue at this point. And there's a, a lot of money invested in the fact that we don't reach them. That's what this pablum country music is about half the time. I've talked about it before. There's some great country artists. I love country, you know, real country and the kind of party down Nashville anthems, you know, some of which are fine and just, you know, confetti. There's nothing wrong with that. You need, you need something to listen to when you're pounding a white claw at the, you know, Alabama sooner or whatever Sooners game or <laughs> I think those are two different teams Alabama playing the Sooners or something the Crimson Tide right I know shit about sports but uh you know there's nothing wrong with good time music there's something wrong with the sort of you know propaganda that these you know songwriting by committee groups insert into this stuff because it's always these fairy tales about an America that no longer exists you know, if they were singing about, hey, there's some great Vietnamese food in town now because we got some people that migrated here that are, might look a little different, but they're down to party and goddamn, can they cook some good ass spicy food and let's welcome them in. Let's write about a changing demographic. You know, let's write about the real reason the factory in our town is rusted out, but they don't do that. You know, they write these songs about like, Hanging out on the dirt field on a Saturday night with my grandpappy's gun and my pickup truck and all this shit that's not, that's not real, right? It's bullshit, but it's, it, it, it works on the minds of these people. And they have this, you know, this idea of what rural American life is about. And it's being a God-fearing Christian. And that's who this land is given to. You know, no, this land is land we stole from indigenous people and then murdered them to keep it and then enslaved other people and brought them here to work that land and build this country so we could steal the money <laughs> and become very powerful. And a few of us will end up owning the industries that will manipulate you forever while the rest of you dumbasses will take whatever crumbs we give you and listen to this crappy ass music and buy a gun and a Bible and think you're fighting a battle to protect your way of life. You don't even know what end is up anymore. You know, write a country song about that and I'll listen. But this pablum designed to dumb down people has a real serious effect. It has a real serious effect because when they play it and then the politician walks on stage like Trump does when he plays that god-awful Lee Greenwood song, you know, people think, yeah, that's my country. And for some people, that's all they have is that feeling. And that feeling is intoxicating. That's why Trump always had rallies. That's why he had them when he was president. 
It's why he wouldn't himself obey the lockdowns. People forget the first public event in the summer of 2020 was the Trump rally in Tulsa. None of the rest of us were getting to go to concerts or do anything, but Trump you know, went against the CDC and had a rally. And Harmon Cain died at the damn thing, you know, and a bunch of Secret Service guys who had to protect him got COVID and got sick because of it, right? But Trump understood how important it was to get in front of his people because he knows the people need that hit, you know, they need that dopamine hit that he's given them, right? Because he's fueling their resentments and people get addicted to anger, right? That's what Twitter is. You know, that's what a lot of social media is. People get addicted to being contrarian. You know, they get addicted to fighting. You get addicted to pain. You know, we talk about that in recovery. And that's a lot of what's going on with Trump. He's got a codependent relationship with his base that's incredibly abusive. You know, he's a malignant narcissist. He knows how to manipulate these people, you know, and he's doing a, a job of it that we've never seen before. We've never seen a cult leader of his stature. We've never seen a criminal of his stature. You know, when all is said and done, Trump will be the biggest criminal in American history. I have no doubt about that, you know? And we've, you know, we've put up some pretty famous criminals in our time, you know, but Trump's next level, next level predator. And he's always been, you know, so this is our chance to get that out in the open again, not to grift off the outrage and mine the anger to build our own brands and our own audiences and repeat what everybody else is saying, not to do that, but to genuinely try and educate your fellow American, you know, because there's a lot of money in just preaching to the choir and there's way too many people doing it. Every time I, you know, I log on, somebody else has got a video breaking it down and somebody else wants you to listen to their podcast and all that crap, you know, and if that floats your boat, listen to them. It's not, it's not what I do this for. If you're listening to mine for that, there's plenty of others, you know, <laughs> like I don't want to waste your time. I don't need to make a buck off of you. You know, I need this country to sober up and realize the trouble we're in. And I need the people to use their talents and skills on behalf of harmony and not just trying to, you know, build their own fame, you know, because there's a lot of that going on. And that's going to screw us in the next election too. Because people are going to think, well, what do you mean? I'm fighting back. I send money every month to Lincoln's Project or whatever. Political Action Committee. You know, those are PACs on the left too. Those are super PACs, right? Those are super PACs. They're taking your money to build their own brand, make content to feed off your outrage. And there's a ton of outrage to go around, you know? And people get very titillated and entertained by it, but that's not going to get you anywhere. That's going to get you in trouble again. You know, you have to be clear eyed and sober about, you know, what's really going on here because you'll get breathless coverage on MSN and podcasts and all this kind of stuff, MSM, MSNBC, CNN, all this crap. You know, we're gearing up for a tsunami of coverage, just like we barely escaped from, you know? in this next year and a half. And it's not to say it isn't worth covering, but you know, all the time we talk about this, we're not talking about climate change. The world's on fire right now. Every night on the nightly news, I think we should be doing a segment on, hey, in Beijing yesterday, half the cars floated away on a river because the whole place turned into a lake because of torrential downpours. And by the way, the same thing happened up in Vermont and the Adirondacks and people are going fourth degree burns, getting burned, walking, you know, falling down on the sidewalk or sleeping in the, on the sidewalk in Phoenix, you know, and the water's 101 degrees in Key West, you know, Key Largo. You know, we're not hearing about that stuff. In Vietnam, every night, Walter Cronkite, and I remember when I was a little kid, I would catch the tail end of the coverage of the Vietnam world. Obviously, we were out of there in 75. I was born in 71. I was young. But I had a family connection. I've told you guys about my grandfather's involvement with Vietnam. Maybe you all haven't heard, but he was very involved with Nixon and Kissinger and left this country because he got in a fight with Kissinger over the bombing of Cambodia. And 
moved my father's side of the family to West Cork, to Ireland in protest. And he would have like General Westmoreland at Thanksgiving dinner. You know, he, he was OSS in World War II, like in Panama. He was in the, the back of the limo with Nixon in Venezuela when everybody attacked it and stuff. He'd been attached to Nixon his whole career, hated him, you know, but did a lot of bad shit for this country in the name of of thinking he was doing the right thing in democracy. And then when he saw how much Nixon would only listen to Kissinger and how their political interests were all they cared about and not how many people died, you know, especially after, you know, the, the North Vietnamese went to the table in Paris in 68 and there was basically going to be peace. And Nixon said, if this war is over, or Kissinger rather told Nixon, if this war ends, you're not getting elected president. This is the first time, you know, after Johnson didn't seek re-election, right? And behind the scenes, you know, Kissinger was able to scuttle that peace talk and they extended the war into Nixon's term, right? And then we started seeing all the bodies coming home, you know, every night on the news. And that's what turned the tide. I mean, the tide had already obviously turned in the late 60s. That's why Johnson didn't seek re-election, right? But it was that visual of these kids, you know, your buddies in high school. And then six months later, you know, his body's coming home in a casket, you know, before he got a chance to grow up. He's still a kid. He gets sent halfway around the world, you know, killed in some jungle. He doesn't know why he's there. And then he's sent home and people said enough of this. It's insane. We should do the same thing with climate change. We should be showing the damage and the suffering and the loss of life every night on the news so we can realize the insane times that we're in and that we're not powerless. You know, we all need to change our habits quickly. You got to stop using single use plastics. You know, every time you get carry out and you get 10 of those black canister things, those things don't get recycled. You know, it's a lie. It makes us feel better to put them in the curb and stuff. They recycle very few of those plastics. You know, they get sent off somewhere and they don't, they end up in the ocean, man. They end up in the ocean. They end up killing us. And plastics are made out of oil, you know, and the oil and gas that we're burning is catastrophic for our planet. And this is the best summer we're going to have. It's only going to go downhill from here. You know, and people need to hear that. They need to hear that every night. And it dovetails perfectly with the next election, right? Because the Republicans getting back into power, you're not going to hear that, right? Because the oil and gas industry owns them. I mean, they own enough of the Democrats. They own all of the Republicans, you know, and they have spoilers like Joe Manchin ready to consider running against Biden. They got nut jobs like RFK Jr., who I talked about last time on the pod, you know? So they, they're spending a lot of money to make sure we don't get hip to what's going on to our, in our planet, you know? And it's our world, man. We got to take it back. We got to claim it. And we got to do it through communication and courage. You know, we lost, we lost Sinead O'Connor last week, you know? A woman who was a hero of mine since I was a kid, since she came on the scene. I mean, I wasn't a kid. I was probably 19, you know, and I remember when she went to the Grammys in 89, she wore the public enemy logo, you know, the target. She had it painted on the side of her head because she was protesting the lack of hip hop, you know, in any of the categories that they didn't have a category for hip hop. And I remember thinking like, I've never heard of this girl before. She's at the Grammys and she's like protesting like that takes such courage, you know, because when you're performing for the first time at the Grammys, that's like an audition. That's like a coming out thing. When you're an unknown artist and you get that kind of green light, most people are like, whatever I got to do to get in this industry, I'm going to do. And she showed up, you know, with a bald head with a public enemy logo painted on the side, you know, and this is before her hit, you know, this is before nothing compares to you, which is brilliant and was a number one hit all over the world, you know, and then she lived true to herself and ripped up that picture of Pope John Paul II on Saturday Night Live, right? And ended the career that the industry had in mind for her 
And all the baby boomers booed her at Madison Square Garden a few weeks later until Chris Christopherson came out, you know, and put his arm around her. He was the only one there who had the courage to do that. And they sent him out there, by the way, to, to pull her off a stage. They said, go get her off of there. And he's like, I'm not doing that. Chris is the real deal, you know? And so was Sinead O'Connor, you know? And it takes courage to be the real deal. And she called out the Catholic Church and the Pope 10 years before that got in the mainstream media, you know, before Boston Globe reporters, I believe it was the Boston Globe, you know, broke the story about the cover-ups in the diocese up in Massachusetts, you know? And in Ireland, in her home country, I mean, generations and generations of abuse that everybody knew and nobody spoke about, you know? And here she is, one of the lucky few, you know, somebody who was abused as a kid who had to live in a, like a, a nun's place because her, you know, her mom abused her. So as a teenager, you know, she's basically in an orphanage and somebody gives her a guitar and she sings and they realize she has this gift and she pursues this gift and then is on a world stage at 26 with massive success. And instead of being like, I made it, I'm going to get mine now. She was looking back at the people behind her that were still suffering and knowing the truth and knowing she was going to use her moment in the spotlight to speak her truth. That's the real deal. You know, that's the kind of courage and communication we need in this world. And she paid a heavy price for it, you know, and suffered immensely. And I, my thoughts and prayers go out to her and everyone who, who knew her. And I'll count myself amongst those who loved her, even though I never met her. You know, I loved her. I cried three times that day. When I heard the news on my phone, I was eating a bowl of berries at my table over there. And I just started weeping, man. And I did a few other times that day. That's why I couldn't do one last week, one of these podcasts, you know. Because it, you know, it feels like we're losing our heroes. Pee Wee Herman, another guy who brought joy. We just lost him the other day. You know, another guy they tried to tarnish with a fake scandal. The whole masturbation thing. It was an adult movie theater in like Tampa Bay. Like that's what you do. You pay the five bucks so you can go in there and jerk off. What do you think a buddy booth is in Times Square? <laughs> you know, a video booth. Like he was just doing adult stuff. He wasn't, you know. He wasn't jerking off in Barbie like I did last week. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I haven't seen Barbie, but that's probably why. <laughs> um, but you know what I mean? But they tarnished him, you know, and he paid a price for it. And that was a guy who was incredibly subversive, incredibly kind. And I mean, subversive in the best sort of way, coming at it from a place of love, you know, and and, and a feeling for the absurdity in life and those who are not like everybody else, you know, and that's what Sinead was. Flea had a great quote from Red Hot Chili Peppers. He was like, you know, I loved her because when she made it, it was like, hey, us street urchins, you know, have a place in this world. And Anthony dated her, you know, his partner. So both of those people, you know, it hurts because they, they had courage, you know, they had courage to be themselves you know, in their art. And that's what real art is. And a lot of people get success and they just want more of it. You know, Madonna was all too happy to pile on Sinead when she was going through that troubles because Madonna feels threatened by somebody else's success because Madonna isn't sure of her own talents and her own abilities. And she just wants to be number one all the time, you know? And here comes Sinead, who was artist of the year, you know, in 2002 or whatever, and didn't even go to the Grammys or 2002, 1992, sorry, you know? And I know people who worked on that Dylan tribute. I got into the industry in 93, a year later. And I met Tony Bennett, another guy we lost, who was the same sort of vibe, a master of his craft, right? An incredibly accomplished singer who had seen it all, who loved to paint, who was a masterful painter, who I met on my first gig backstage at the Kennedy Center Honors. And I remember I was with this girl who, you know, somebody else I was working with, pretty girl, 
And, you know, I'm like, Hey, that's Tony Bennett, you know, let's go talk to him. <laughs> you know? And I walk up to Tony with his girl. I'm like, Hey, how you doing? He's like, Hey guys, how are you? He was so happy to talk to like some young people. I mean, I was 22 at the time. I looked like I was 12. He was like, I'm playing the HF festival tomorrow night. Do you guys like David Bowie? My, my son's playing in Tin Man or whatever. You know, he was just like so hip and so cool. And I did his 90th birthday party at Radio City Music Hall not long ago. This was 2018, maybe, or something. And uh, he was the same guy. You know, I knew some of his band members very well, Ray and Marshall, the guitar player and the bassist. And uh, I knew them well. I did tons of gigs with with him. And, and Tony never changed. Whether you were doing a tree lighting and you were waiting to pre-tape on top of a building in the freezing rain and standing there because Lady Gaga was taken forever in the music, I mean, in the makeup chair, you know, not to diss on her, just her glam squad. I remember this night clearly was taken forever to get her ready we had the band set we had tony set there's freezing rain falling down tony is looking like a baller in his like beautiful suit you know ready to rock and just smiling and it's like 11 30 at night on a tuesday night you know and i'm like that's what you want you know you want to have been in this industry for 60 years you know be in your 90s and still loving it, you know, and because you're he's loving it because he's about to sing with Lady Gaga. You know, he's he's about to sing with another big artist in her generation. You know, he's into the art. He's not into his career. You know what I mean? He's into what singing does to people and what playing music does to people because he knows it works on their spirit and it changes lives. You know? That's what I'm always preaching about on this show. You know, that's how you really reach people. That's why I'm going off on the music that doesn't reach people. I'm not being a judge of what you listen to, but what you listen to should be authentic, right? It should be who those people really are, because that's what you're really reacting to in art is truth. You know, that's what we recognize inside. Oh, yeah, I feel that way, too. That's truthful. That's not manipulative. That's not trying to get something out of me. That's not trying to distract me. You know, that's trying to reach me, you know, and that's what this world needs more of, you know, more art, more music, more harmony, more love. All right. I think that's enough for now. I appreciate all you guys. I love you guys. I know that was a big rant, but we had a lot of room to cover. I'll get into more specifics next time. We definitely can talk more about climate and I'd love to bring some people on the show that know a lot more about that than me. But uh, in the meantime, you know, just love each other, be kind to each other, make a plan, make a plan how you're going to change some habits, you know, to adjust to this new world and this new climate and make a, you know, find a way to communicate some of this stuff. If anything I said to you resonates about, you know, what we need to tell people about this, uh, you know, this latest indictment, figure out a way to do it. Cause now's your chance to reach people. You know, a lot of people tried that with the Mueller report. There was these staged readings of things that I was involved with. It was just like, it was too arcane. You know, it was just too deep in the weeds and stuff. And they, they had too big a mouthpiece to counter it at the time. They don't have that mouthpiece. You know, they got Twitter and trolls and Fox and all that, but they don't have the mic right now. We have the mic, you know, Jack Smith has the mic. And I think the fact that he was able to come out and, and give those brief remarks yesterday, I wasn't expecting it. And I think it was, you know, I think it was very important. And I think it, it kind of was a clue to the rest of us as to, as to what the tone and the themes are of the information that we need to help sort of distribute in our world. Because it's our world. And it's not just politics as usual. This isn't like we don't like Republicans, you know, so we're going to judge you. No, this is like if you like freedom, you got to lock this guy up. All right. Anyway, I love you guys. Thank you for listening. Check out Noel's notes on Substack. That's the only kind of job I have these days is writing those things. I put a lot of work into them. I have them edited, you know, proofread before I put them out. It's many hours, three or four hours, each one writing and 
editing and, you know, it's all free. All that information is free. Some people have, have gone for the monthly subscription and that means more to me than you'll ever know. So if you love the podcast and you want a way to support it, sign up for the Substack because you're going to get a bonus, you know, and it's not just a, a silly bonus, you know, you're getting for me hard work, you know, and, and, and trying to, you know, put some of this thoughts that run through my head in, in writing in a cogent way that I may not do on the podcast because <laughs> I tend to ramble and rant in case you haven't noticed. I'll bring the guitar back next week. In the meantime, thank you for listening. Noelcastler.com if you want to buy a t-shirt and otherwise just take care of yourselves. I love you guys. Until next time. Peace.